Let me begin this time uh, by committing ourselves to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for mothers. We thank you for Christ. We pray today as we open our eyes and our ears, God, that your word of truth may come to us. That our minds may be engaged with your truth and our hearts can be engaged to respond through your Holy Spirit. For the glory of your Son. Amen. I'd like to begin today's passage with this one question. And the question is this. What should we expect when we become Christians? What should we expect when we become Christians? According to Paul, when he wrote Romans 8 verse 17, he says, As Christians, we should expect two things. Suffering, because we are in Christ. And glory, because we are in Christ. There are two things Christians should expect. Suffering, because we are in Christ. And glory, because we are in Christ. Romans 8, verse 17, let me read it to us again. In fact, if you have your Bible today, uh, keep it open because we will uh, look at it quite closely. Romans eight seventeen. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. It goes on, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Christians are expected to face sufferings. In fact, the sufferings in today's passage are not referring to the common suffering that Christians and non-Christians both experience. Today's passage is focused on sufferings that Christians have to bear because we identify ourselves with Christ Jesus. In fact, later on, Paul illustrates some of the suffering in verse 35. He, st- he says, Trouble, hardships, persecution, famine, nakedness, dangers, sword. And he's just listing out the sufferings that Christians all through the centuries experience. From the beginning, at Paul's time, the apostles, the other disciples, to the churches, up to the time of now that those who identify with Christ face sufferings. These sufferings are normal Christian life. As, In fact, Christ ex- explained what does his suffering means in John. Let me look at John and read this to you. Do I have it in, up there? John chapter 15, verse 19 to 20. Let me read it to us. You... Do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also. Christians from the very beginning face sufferings. In Romans, uh, in Acts chapter 5, we hear about the Sanhedrins and the priests, high priests, calling the apostles in and flogging them because they were talking about Jesus. And Christians in every part of the world, even right now, face suffering. Uh, I was just looking again at this letter from Open Doors, and this was the headlines from Open Doors. They say, we will kill those who preach Christianity one by one. This is a letter received by various pastors in Bangladesh. Uh, they say, we will kill those who preach Christianity one by one. In fact, just last month we received a letter from our mission partner, isn't it? Our brother Anne says this, 
the people led by a local government officer started beating our church members. Their women attacked our sisters in faith and their men attacked our brothers. Christians face sufferings because of Christianity, because of who they identify with. Even Christians, us, in this room, we face sufferings as well. For some of us, we will face suffering when we try to speak and live as Christians at home, in our workplace, in the army, for those who are there, in school, everywhere we go. If we want to really speak as Christians and behave like that, we will face um, objections. For the rest of us, some of us, we will also face uh, decisions where we make at a very costly price because we made it as Christians. So sufferings, because of Christ, is expected in Christians. But today's passage, Paul has something important to tell us to change the view of our Christian suffering. And he has something amazing to tell us. Look at verse 18. Paul says this, For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's speaking as a man who knows all kinds of suffering, but he says sufferings as a Christian is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Paul is reminding us that there's something that's much, much greater in the future than what we are facing now. So Paul is saying, now, suffering now is real, it's temporal, and it's not comparable to the glory that we will soon receive. When that glory is revealed, all the pains, all the sufferings for the gospel will be left behind. Sufferings will become a distant memory when we finally savor the glory that God has prepared for us that we share as co-heirs with Christ. In fact, our future is so glorious that Paul speaks about how this whole creation right now are waiting for the day when the glory of God's children will be revealed. So as we look at verse 19 to 26, let us see how Paul describes the longing for the glory that is to be revealed. And this glory is so magnificent that creations and Christians are able to bear current suffering because they are able to see the future glory. So look at verse 20 with me as I read it for us. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. When we read this, the first thing that comes in mind is Genesis 3. Because that's when creation was subjected to suffering, frustrations and decay. Genesis 3 says this. God, In fact, God says this to, Ab- uh, to Adam when he uh, sinned against him. And God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. The state of creation is linked to the state of the children of God. When the children of God falls, the creation suffers. And they are cursed by God. Creation now is unable to fully uh, fulfill that this purpose uh, that God has given it. So creation is still functioning, but it's not able to fulfill what God has planned for it. So if we liken um, creation to be kind of a rusty grinder, right? Or an engine that you threw some sand in, or some of us are familiar, eyes with cataract. Uh, it's still functioning, but it's not functioning at its optimum. And that's what creation is at the moment. We find weeds among the weeds. We we find rain and wind that's meant to regulate the world, 
becoming natural disasters. We find fire that's meant to keep us warm, burning out a forest. Creation is not what is meant to be at this moment. But creation is not giving up hope. Look at what creation is doing in verse 19. Although it's filled with decay and um, facing decay and facing um, frustration, this is what creation says. Uh, it's looking forward to verse 19. The crea- for creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of glory of the children of God. We know that the creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. You know what creation knows? Creation knows that the glory to be revealed in the children of God is so amazing that they are willing to wait in eager expectation. Creation knows that its its frustration will eventually lead to freedom. The frustration they face now is nothing compared to the new creation that they will become. That's why verse 22 tells us this. Creation groans not with hopelessness. Creation groans as in the pains of childbirth. Who are are mothers here? Who are mothers? Some mothers, right? Okay, a little bit. What, um, as we celebrate Mother's Day today, there are two things that mothers are very aware of about childbirth. Number one, they know that the pains of childbirth is real and the dads don't know what it is about. Right? So we, we are there in the waiting room, but the first thing we see is the baby, the mom is suffering. Moms know what childbirth, the pains of childbirth, the dads doesn't really. But the second thing the mom knows about childbirth, it is painful but it is purposeful, it is meaningful, it's worth every bit of it. And mothers are willing to endure child pain, the, birth of, the pain of childbirth. Mothers are willing to endure the pain of childbirth because suffering comes before glory. Suffering comes before your greatest joy and pride, the arrival of the life that God has given through you. Suffering is not comparable to the new life that comes forth. So the pain of childbirth, the glory, of birth, the glory ahead is more than sufficient to compensate for the pain that, uh, that mothers go through, that childbirth brings. And that is what Paul used to describe creation. They are frustrated, they are decaying, but it's like childbirth because they know that they will become a new creation when the children of God is revealed. And verse 23 tells us, not only creation, but Christians, we too long for adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Look at verse 23 with me. Look at verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who had the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The reason why Christians, we, groan for adoption is because we have already received the first fruits of the Spirit. We have received the guarantee of the Spirit and we have already tasted what the goodness of God is and we wanted everything. 
So because we have the Spirit in us, our groaning now as Christians is very different from the groaning of those without the Spirit. Our groaning is not out of hopelessness. It sounds like it, but it's not triggered by Monday blues. Our groanings are not because of the challenges common to all people. The groaning that we have is actually an eager groaning for the adoption where we will receive our inheritance. That is the groaning that we have because of the Spirit in us. This is our groaning for the amazing glory that God has prepared for each and every one of His children. When we finally receive the redeemed bodies like our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul puts in verse 18 that we read, Our present sufferings are not worth comparing. For the glory, we refuse to befriend the world and the devil. We are we would rather be enemies and at odds with the devil than to be friends because of the glory that God has given uh, promise to us. So like creation, we patiently wait, but with eager expectation of our redemption. You know what this also means? This also means that when Christians, we face Christian sufferings, we can and we should be praying for rescue and relief. And God can answer our prayers. But today's passage tells us that we will not be taken out of total sufferings because our redemption is not here yet. So this is something that as Christians we need to be prepared for. That God can relieve us from sufferings and pain, but we will not be completely relieved from it until the glory comes. I'd just like to pause here for a moment as we think about our own Christian life and as a body of Christ in BTPC. How do, how do you and how do I respond to Christian suffering? Do we think at times that Christian suffering is an option? Today's passage suggests to us that it is not an option. It is actually a normal Christian experience in a world that doesn't acknowledge Jesus as Lord. We will face suffering as we proclaim Jesus as the only God. If you say he's one of the gods, you may not get much trouble, but if you say he's the only God, uh, we will face suffering. We'll suffer when we stand on biblical truths that others consider foolish, inflexible, or intolerant. We will face suffering as we try to defend and support persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ, whether it's through prayer, finance, or even writing petitions. You know, there's one thing I was very encouraged when I look at our financial statements, I think members you have received it, is uh, that PTPC is really serious about supporting missions and standing by persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is because we believe that it's worth every bit of it because we will all share in the glory that God has prepared for us. And so it is a, it's such an encouragement when I see that and we pray that we will continue to fight for that and to persevere in that. But we must go on. The groaning for our glory doesn't stop just at creation, doesn't stop just with us. Paul has more good news for us because the Spirit of God himself is also groaning for our future glory and at the same time, God is working towards the same end point. Look at verse 
26 with me. Look at verse 26 and I'll read this to us. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. This is an amazing part of it, isn't it? Not just creation is groaning, not just us who are groaning. The Spirit of God Himself is groaning for us. And just as the Spirit wants the glory of God's children to be revealed, so He is currently helping us in our weakness. If you look at the verse, what is our weakness? Our weakness is in our prayer. We do not know how to pray many times. As you and I reflect on our prayer lives, we realize that so often, right? We pray, we desire for God's glory, but at the same time, we desire for relief, we desire for something else. There are times that we long for our glory, but the the troubles of the world kind of distract us and we forget about glory. But guess who has not forgotten? The Spirit in us has not forgotten and He's interceding for us that we are moving on even as we are struggling with suffering. Um, there is um, a theologian by the name Thomas Schreiner. He, he explained it this way. I'll just read uh, what he says to us and let's think about it. He says this, The weakness of believers in prayer is that we do not have an adequate grasp of what God's will is when we pray. The trouble with our prayers, because we can't grasp the full will of God, our prayer is not perfect. But guess who knows the full will of God and is able to intercede perfectly? The Spirit of God who is in us. So verse 26-27 says this, right? The Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groan. The Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. I think this should bring us a lot of comfort that in our Christian life, the Spirit of God in us are praying and intercede for us perfectly according to the will of God and guess what God will respond? He will say, yes. So it is our encouragement that God's will is being fulfilled and is continually being fulfilled despite our weaknesses and our inability to pray perfectly. Because the Spirit who is in us is not only changing us, He is also praying for us. That's why verse 28 tells us we can be assured that God will use all things, all things, including sufferings, to bring about our good. This good in verse 28, in this context, is not something we are going to get immediately. That Sometimes we read this as, this good is much greater. It is the promise of our redemption in our bodies that is going to come at the end of everything. This good is not what we get here. It is the final good that creation and Christians and the Spirit are groaning for. That is the good that God is going to bring about for us. And He will use all things, including sufferings. The question is, what's underlying the purpose of all of this? The Spirit's work, 
God's work. And that is verse 29. Look at verse 29. The purpose of the Spirit's intercession, God's work is this, that we may be conformed to the image of His Son. So this is the journey. This is our Christian journey. This is um, the prayer uh, and the intercession of God's Spirit. And this is where the works of God is leading us. That we will share in Christ's glory. Because of Jesus, we will receive our adoption and in His grace, in the love of God, in the fellowship of God's Holy Spirit, we will be co-heirs with our brother and our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the glory that we are uh, looking forward to. So to this end, God is committed to make sure that it happens. From the very beginning to the very end, God is committed to bring us to conform to the image of His Son. So that's where this few big words comes in in verse 29 and 30. It tells us God is the one who foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. What do all these big words mean? Uh, before I try to explain them, I would like to um, draw attention to the intention first so that we don't get distracted when we try to explain um, this point. The intention of talking about God's beginning, uh, foreknowledge, predestination, call, you know, justify and glorify, is to give us assurance that God who has started this, He will complete this. We will be glorified. So we need to have this as the understanding of the intention of Paul's uh, mention of these five words or five stages that I try to explain them briefly for us. But understand this is what Paul is trying to do. So verse 29, he says, For those God foreknew. No, the word foreknew is not so much of an intellectual word as if God knows who is going to believe in Him and so He saves them. The word foreknew or the word to know uh, is a relational word. It means this, that before we even know God, God has already set His affection on us. God has already known us and already knew us and He has set His affection on us. Let me give you an example from Jeremiah 1.5. God says to the prophet Jeremiah, He says this, Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. It's quite opposite of the feeling that God knew why we will love Him, so He loved us back. It's the very opposite, that God set His love before we are even able to do it. Later on in Romans 11, this is what um, Paul says, God did not reject His people whom He foreknew. It's not how the person reacts, but God will not reject His people that He has set His affection on. That's what we meant when we say God foreknew. And then the second word, predestination, comes in. It just it means this thing, that God decides a sure and certain destination for those He has set His affection on. Let me say that again. Predestination, it means here that God decides a sure and certain destination for those He has set His affection on. So verse 29 tells us God is determined that those He sets affection on will be perfected. They will bear the image of His Son. 
So both the word foreknew and predestination, they are determined by God outside of our human history. God has already decided it. And then the third word, the third big word comes in. It starts to enter into our human history. And the word is this, God called us. It means because God has foreknew us, has set his affection on us, and God has set a destination for us, God calls us to himself through the gospel of his son Jesus Christ. And when we hear the call and we come to him, God justifies the forward God justifies and made us right with him by the death of his son. Now all four things have happened. What is left? That God will glorify us. The words in past tense, right? But what it means is that although the glory is there and we are waiting to receive it, it's a done deal. God who has begun with it, God is going to finish it. Glory for God's children is a done deal because God is determined for it to happen. That's why all the more that the glory is so amazing that the suffering can't be compared with it. There's so much to ponder about it, but if anything, we will, if you can't catch everything, it's fine. What Paul wants to bring us is to be assured that God is going to make it happen. So with this assurance, knowing that God's Spirit in us, in fact, God in us is making this happen, we can now look at the last part, verse 31 to 39, where we see the certainty of our hope for glory as we engage with suffering. Uh, Let me look at verse 31 to 39. As we dig into this passage, I want to invite us to, um, if you have glasses, right? imagine you have a glass, this is spiritual glasses that we have been preparing from verse 17 up to right now. These are glasses that we see suffering in view of our future glory. Because when we don't have this, uh, suffering can create a lot of doubt. Okay, so hold this with me that we have, that you put on your spiritual glasses as we look at the next few verses. In fact, let me read 31 to 32 uh, for us and see the difference when you have the glasses and without the glasses. Let me read verse 31, 32. What then shall we say in response to all this, to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? All things. So imagine first without our spiritual glasses, uh, doubts start to come in because the reality as the world sees it, Christians, we find many who will be against us. Christians who are suffering for the gospel finds enemies in all directions. Who is against us? Everyone is against us. This is how Christians are being seen in the world. Christians are threatened. Christians are thrown into jail. Christians are killed. All kinds of unspeakable pain are experienced by Christians around the world. And Christians suffering the gospel often find themselves not with abundance but in need. In need of food, in need of resources, in need of medical attention, in need of friends. Without the spiritual glasses, doubts and discouragement can easily slip in likewise. For us, when we look, shall I tell someone about Jesus? People will be against us. Without the glasses, we will find that our suffering causes us doubt 
and discouragement. But put on the glasses now. Put on the glasses and see from the internal perspective. And then we realize the truth is very opposite. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 is saying to, to us this, If God is on our side, who can stand against us? There is no one who can wage a war against God and win. No enemies can stop God from giving us the inheritance He's determined to give. Who can stand against God? Who can stand against us? On that final day, no enemies will stand before God. And so no enemies can stand against us as God give us His intended inheritance. And verse 32, God, if He did not spare His own Son, Jesus Christ, will He not graciously give us all things? No, everything God allows to happen to us, including being in need, flows from His grace. Perhaps, it's, perhaps it is to help us to grab on to God even more. We, we don't know. The Spirit knows. But God intends all things to work for our good. The world will not see this, but with the glasses of God's promise, we will see in all things, even when we don't understand it, God will bring about our good. There is nothing costlier than God giving His own Son, Jesus. What else will God withhold? Someone used to say this, I think it's Moody, he says, if Mr. Tiffany give us his best diamond, what will stop him from giving us the wrapping paper? Um, so we realize that God is not withholding things from us, but God wants to give us what He intends to give us. That includes the things that we have to go through at this stage. So verse 31 and 32 with our spiritual glasses tells us that all things will turn out victorious and we will receive our inheritance. Now, next thing, what else can cause doubts in Christians when we kind of lose our glasses? Verse 33 and 34 tells us two things. Verse 33 says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And verse 34, Who is the one who condemns? You know, without the glasses, we realize that all kinds of charges and condemnation comes to us. The world has plenty to say about us. The devil has plenty to say about us. Guess what? We have plenty to say about our own sins, our own wrongs and how guilty we are. The failures in our words, our actions, our deeds, our tendency to string from the cross that we meant to carry, our tendency to be quiet instead of testifying of, about Jesus. We know very well that we should be receiving judgment and not inheritance. But that's where the glasses comes back again. And verse 33, 34 tells us this, No one can bring any charge to us, for God has justified us. There is no one who can condemn us, for God's Son, Jesus Christ, has already taken the condemnation we deserve and paid for it with His life. But more than that, Christ has risen victoriously from the dead as now at the right hand of God. And guess what Jesus is doing? If you look at the faces, what is Jesus doing? He's doing what the Spirit is doing. He's interceding for us. He's interceding for us. So no, we will not face charges or condemnation on the last day. We will receive our inheritance. But there's a, another form of um, doubt that comes in. That's relationship. That's the feeling part that our Christians face. And that's in verse 35, 39. You know, without assurance 
doubts come in, when we, we start to ask this question, well, does Christ really love me? Will He stop loving me? Will God stop speaking to me? And is He already stopped speaking to me? You know, there are occasions in our Christian life where God seems to be very silent. I don't know, have you experienced this or are you experiencing this? That God is very silent. He's not raising His hand to save us even when we are suffering. In fact, this is the very thing that Paul wants to talk about. Look at verse 36. Verse 36 says this. It's taken from Psalms 44. So I'm going to read Psalms 44, but you see it's the same. Psalms 44, verse 22, 23. This is what God's people say. Yet, for God's sake, we face death all day. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. I know, are there times where you feel that you're suffering as Christian, you're trying your best, God is quiet. This is what verse 36 is saying. So without our spiritual glasses, there are occasions where we start to doubt whether Christ still loves us, whether God still loves us, and whether He will fulfill it. But with our glasses on, Christ's love for us and God's love for us becomes real. Look at what it's saying in 35 to 39. Can anything separate us from God's love and Christ's love? The answer is no. Look at 34. No trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword can separate us from Christ's love for us. And goes on 38. Neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither present nor future, any powers, neither heights or depths, nor anything else in the world will be able to separate us from the love of God. So the truth is, even the greatest Christian suffering that can be experienced, even death threats that a lot of Christians face, they will not separate us from the love of God or from the Christ, from the love of Christ. So as we are about to close, I pray that we will be encouraged by today's message that our suffering for Christ now is nothing compared to the glory that God has prepared for us. We are not facing our sufferings alone. Because God's Spirit is in us, helping us. In fact, God is working on it right now. For our good, the inheritance that He has promised us. So as we conclude, look at Romans 8. In the beginning, what did Paul says, there is no condemnation. At the end of Romans 8, there is no separation from the love of God. And this has to be true. Because someone has taken our condemnation someone has taken the separation from God. And that someone is found in Matthew 27. Let me read us this account. The account of Jesus as He hung on the cross for our sake. Matthew 27, 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the lands. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabakatani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried again in a loud voice, He gave up His Spirit. Jesus who faced the total silence at the greatest point of human suffering takes our condemnation and takes our separation from God and put it on Himself. So we can be certain 
brothers and sisters, that God's love will never leave us. Christ's love will never leave us. Who else can condemn us? Who else can separate us from the love of God and the love of Christ? May His word strengthen us even as we face Christian sufferings that we can eagerly and patiently wait for the glory that will certainly come. Shall we pray? Father, Abba, Father, how thankful we are that you have secured this from the beginning of time and you will complete this when Christ returns. Thank you for the Spirit who is now living in us, not just changing us, but helping us so that we may bear the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us strength to see and eyes to see the glory ahead so that we can bear the sufferings for Christ's sake with joy and confidence. For His glory pray. Amen.